Hi, and welcome back to the Wild EM podcast, where our goal is bringing you better care while you're out there. Today's topic, wound care. And we're going to build off last episode, so if you haven't checked out episode one, do head back there first. And today's discussion, we're going to talk about wound care in the wilderness setting, because in the wilderness, it often differs from in the hospital setting. And we're going to build this discussion around a great case report called They Had Me in Stitches by Dr. Spano and all. And essentially, the case report describes the story of a river guide who was rafting down the Grand Canyon, um, had an injury from one of the frame pieces, I believe, from the oar of his raft, which caused a leg laceration. Um, Luckily, uh, two doctors were on the trip, if I remember, a surgeon and an anesthetist, and they were able to clean the wound using providone iodine and suture the wound close. So pretty standard treatment for wound care that you would expect in the hospital setting. Unfortunately... Over the next days, the wound would just deteriorate. Um, It would get reopened, debrided, flushed again with more providone iodine, and eventually antibiotic, oral antibiotics were prescribed um, for the river guide. Unfortunately, after a few days again of deterioration, he was evacuated out um, by Chopper, I believe, where he was brought to the hospital sending, where he spent a few days in the hospital, um, even had to go to OR to get the wound debrided again, um, before making a full recovery. So what this comes to show is that wound care in the wilderness setting is different from in the hospital. Because standard of care in the hospital sometimes may not be the best care in the wilderness setting. And we're going to go over a few of those key differences. Patient history. When I approach a laceration or wound in the wilderness setting, there are a few pieces of information that I want to know about the patient before we get going. How old is he or she? And this is really going to impact in my mind the potential for complications of wound healing. As we grow older, we have more vascular disease and therefore more risk of the wound not healing properly or infection developing. In the same train of thought, I want to know if the patient is diabetic, if they have any known vascular disease, and if they smoke, as all of those risk factors also will impair wound healing. And with regards to the injury itself, I want to know the timing of the wound. Obviously, uh, more time that has elapsed since the wound developed itself, higher the risk of infection as it is probably more contaminated. The location and the proximity to any neuromuscular structures or joints, because obviously if there's any evidence of the wound extending into the joint, that is a very bad situation. And also the environment in which the wound occurred. Um, Is it a wound contaminated by dirt, like water, clean water, seawater? Is it any biting involved, animal bites or human bites? Because we'll touch on this a little bit later, but they all have specific bacteria or infection risks. And you want to treat those a little differently and sometimes even prophylactically cover with antibiotics. Hemostasis. Now, first of all, when assessing a wound that is bleeding, you want to apply direct pressure. We've talked about this in episode one, so I'll spare you my story again, but do go listen to that episode if you haven't already. But I just want to re-emphasize how that direct pressure is the way to go to stop bleeding and not just bandage the wound over bandage over bandage over continuous bleeding. This is further emphasized again in the Wilderness Medical Society guidelines on wound care. They state there, that direct pressure can achieve pressures of 180 millimeters of mercury, compared to not even 90 with pressure dressings. So those aren't even regular dressings. Even with pressure dressings, the pressures that you achieve are half of what you get with direct pressure. So really, if it's bleeding, direct pressure. All right, there you go. Now, once the bleeding is under control, we want to clean the wound. Wound cleaning. So what solution should we use here? Dyer and al. published an article entitled Comparison of Wound Irrigation Solutions Used in the ED in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 1990. They found no difference in infection rates between using normal saline and providone iodine solutions. 
On top of no benefit, there is a potential risk of using provodine iodine solutions, as they have been suggested to be toxic for the cells and to impede healing. A later meta-analysis by Cooper et al., again published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2012, came to a similar conclusion, but this time that water is just as effective in wound cleaning as other solutions, so normal saline as we discussed in the earlier study, or provodone iodine solutions. It's important to note that in these studies, though, water was tap water, potable tap water in the hospital. So in the wilderness setting, I think it's important to translate this to using potable water that you would use to drink, um, not just water obviously lying around in some muddy swamp. So maybe you're like me after that and thinking, hmm, it's funny that antibacterial solution is no better than water. And it brings us to our next point. Irrigation. Because I really think this is where the money is. Not the solution that you're using to irrigate the wound, be it water or provident iodine, but how you're irrigating the wound. Because probably it's in the irrigation that lies the benefit to prevent infection from developing from the mechanical action of the irrigation, which is flushing out the bacteria, flushing out the debris that do contaminate the wound. So how should we irrigate? A few studies have looked into this, and there is a Goldilocks phenomenon. Meaning, if you irrigate with too little pressure, debris persists in the wound, gets infected. But if you irrigate with too high pressures, that can just push debris deeper in the wound, especially in small puncture wounds, and can wash out helpful inflammatory mediators that produce by our bodies to really help the wound healing process. The conclusion here is that the optimal way to irrigate a wound is with a 35cc syringe and a 19 gauge osteocath. That will give just the right amount of pressure you want, not too little, not too much, to irrigate the wound and get the debris out without causing more damage. Now in the emergency department, this is easy. You have that equipment there, no problem to use it. But in the wilderness setting, I won't carry around a 35cc syringe and a 19 gauge angiocath only specifically for wound irrigation. So there are a few workarounds. Probably you could just use a squirt bottle, like a water bottle if you're banking and you have that with you, just to create some pressure and irrigate out the wound with potable water. Probably don't want to squirt in some Gatorade or whatever fluids you may also have in there. Um, another workaround around this is if you carry a small Ziploc bag or a plastic bag, you can just poke a small hole in there and then you fill it up with water and pressing on the bag than the water um, expelled from the bag. The pressure created by that is probably better um, than nothing or adequate to wash out the debris of your wound. Um, mention that I mentioned both these, these uh, strategies as I have used them in the past, but there's absolutely no medical evidence. I haven't seen this studied um, to be certain that it's reducing the, the great amount of pressure or the perfect amount of pressure. But again, I think it's just, um, you know, doing what makes sense and finding a solution with the equipment you have with yourself in the wilderness setting. As for how much water to use, Roadheaver and all suggested using a total volume of one liter to irrigate wounds. And this gave a better result than irrigating wounds with only 0.1 liters. And it gave exactly the same result as irrigating wounds with 10 liters of water. So again, you have to, I think, go by a case-by-case discussion here. But if you're in the wilderness and you have access to a water source, you have enough means of making that water potable and that's not a limited resource for yourself, then it's probably best to go big and use one liter of volume to irrigate the wound um, and really get out as much of bacteria, infection, and debris that you can to ensure that the wound will heal properly. Now, full disclosure, if you dive in a little deeper into this paper, it looked at removal of bacterial load from bovine muscle. This was studied in a lab setting. So though it seems logical that one liter of irrigation removes more bacteria than 0.1 liter in bovine muscles, this should translate to a reduction in infection rate in human wounds. This is not what was studied, meaning that although the bacterial load was different, was less when you irrigated with one liters compared to 0.1 liters, maybe this doesn't mean anything in human models. Maybe even if you irrigated with 0.2 liters or 0.25 liters, there would be more bacteria, but it wouldn't translate to clinical infection. 
And we just don't know what the answer is here. So in absence of evidence, like we mentioned earlier, I think if water is not a resource, a resource that's limited in your context in the wilderness setting, um, best to irrigate with one liter as probably it will reduce your chances of infection developing. And finally, it's important to also remove any visible debris, foreign bodies that persist after proper irrigation, as these will impede healing and also increase your chance of infection. Wound closure. There are basically two strategies here. Primary closure, which means closing the wound right after, either with strips, skin glue, sutures, or staples, or delayed closure, which is waiting a few days before closing the wound to ensure no signs of infection are present. So there is no clear consensus on what to do here. Although the Wilderness Medical Society recommends primary closure for most wounds, this is what happened to the river guide in the case report discussed earlier, and he ended up needing a chopper evacuation and in the hospital for a few days, with probably a hefty bill for his treatments. In 2013, a Cochrane review concluded that there is no good evidence to guide us on the optimal timing of traumatic wound closure. So I'll go ahead and give you my opinion. I think we have to approach this in a case-by-case fashion. If you go back to our example of the river guide, who has an open wound on his leg and probably no future plans of becoming a leg model, and that infection developing while he's rafting down the Grand Canyon means a chopper evacuation and a probable steep hospital bill, maybe not the best idea to close the wound right away. Though this is not medical evidence, in my personal experience, my brother once had a pretty bad wound on the front of his leg mountain biking too. We cleaned it, irrigated the wound, and elected not to close it. And the next weeks, the wound healed up pretty well, no infection developed, and the cosmetic result was more than acceptable. Though he no longer is a leg model for Trek bikes, but I'm sure he'll find other work. Aftercare. Now that the bleeding is controlled, the wound is cleaned and irrigated. We need to cover up the wound. Here, you want to create a moist environment to optimize wound healing. This can be done either with Vaseline or an antimicrobial topical ointment. This should then be covered with wet gauze and dry gauze on top. Antibiotics. So in the hospital setting, most wounds do not require antibiotics to prevent infection from developing. We will treat infection if the wound develops infection, but most of these wounds heal up pretty nicely, so that's the reason why we don't cover everyone. There are a few wounds that do require antibiotics to prevent infections from developing. Examples of these are human bites or cat bites to the hand. Um, It's important to know that there's no solid evidence base to justify this practice, but it is typical um, emergency medicine practice to cover these types of wounds with antibiotics. So what are the harms of antibiotics? I think taking antibiotics should be taken seriously, as many people will suffer from side effects, ranging from vomiting to diarrhea. About one person out of 20 taking antibiotics will have these side effects, but there are more rare, even life-threatening reactions, either allergic reactions or Stephen Johnson's reactions to certain antibiotics. So though they are rare, they can be life-threatening, and having this type of side effects because of an antibiotic therapy that was not justified to start out with, really not good. Now, with that being said, there are rare occasions where it is my personal opinion that using antibiotics to prevent infection in the wilderness setting could be warranted. So let's go back to our river guide in the example that we discussed above. Say you're going down a multi-day trip um, in the Grand Canyon, you're rafting, and you sustain the same wound to your lower extremity. Obviously, if you were seen in the hospital setting and you could come back at any time, we wouldn't cover you with antibiotics. If infection develops, do come back. But if you're in that setting where if an infection does develop, it's going to necessitate a chopper to evacuate you out, go to a hospital, and that comes all with a hefty insurance bill, then maybe it is better to cover that wound with antibiotics to avoid an infection from developing, since that would be catastrophic to the patient in that scenario. So you see where I'm going with this. I think it's a case-by-case discussion. 
If you have someone where wound infection developing would be catastrophic or very complicated in terms of an evacuation or a rescue, probably best to prevent that from happening. And what would add to that is especially if that patient has had similar antibiotics before and has not had any reactions. Obviously, I'd be much more inclined to cover that patient to avoid a wound from developing. And again, I want to reiterate that this is not standard treatment. Like if you're in the hospital, these types of wounds mostly do not need antibiotics. And people living in the city, it's not a problem at all because they can come back if things get worse. You don't want to subject them to the side effects of antibiotics. But really, I think it's just kind of thinking outside of our usual practice and acknowledging that in the wilderness setting, things are different and you have to weigh the benefits and the risks of each therapy. So with that being said, if you are going to bring antibiotics for wound care on a trip, here's what I would suggest. First, amoxicillin clavulinate. This antibiotic will cover most skin pathogens as well as bacteria involved in human and cat bites. Though not the ideal first-line antibiotic for uncomplicated skin infections, you should rather think cephalexin, or at least here in Canada in my setting. If you are limited in what you can bring, I think amoxicillin clavulinate is a good choice because of its broad activity. A second antibiotic that I think is a good idea to bring is Leviquin. This is also good because it has a pretty broad um, spectrum of pathogens that it covers. And also people who have an anaphylactic type reaction to penicillin uh, could use this antibiotic in this case too. And it could also be recommended to prevent infection for human bite, cat bites. It's also effective for urinary type infections, pulmonary type infections. So really a good broad spectrum antibiotic. Finally, a last antibiotic that I would bring is doxycycline. This antibiotic covers bacteria from the Vibrio species to be suspected for a wound in seawater and also coverage against MRSA for people who have that bacteria on their skin who are, who are carriers. Um, they might not respond to skin and soft tissue infections only treated with Keflex, cephalexin, for example, or amoxicillin clavulinate. So having doxycycline in your back pocket um, as a backup plan would be a good idea. So there you go. That's it for episode number two. Remember that wounds in the wilderness setting cannot be treated just like any other wound in the hospital, and we need to tailor our care to the specific situation. But for most situations, here's what you need to remember to do. Do use direct pressure to achieve bleeding control. Clean and irrigate the wound with one liter of potable water under pressure. Cover the wound with an ointment to create a moist environment and then apply a wet to dry bandage. And finally, antibiotics are not a part of routine wound care. But if you are a trained professional licensed to prescribe them, acknowledge that in rare circumstances, the benefits of antibiotics may prevent infection and that may warrant their use. I'll end off by saying a few reminders. Every wound should be followed up by a healthcare professional to ensure that it's healing well and that no other important tendon or vascular structures are damaged by the wound if that has not been assessed adequately in the field. And also to make sure that all immunizations are up to date as we did not discuss this in the podcast. Also, we have not covered wound care for a suspected rabies infection. This is out of the scope of our current discussion, but rabies is no bueno. And any suspected wound with rabies should be assessed immediately by a trained healthcare professional as treatment does differ from the basic wound care that we have just discussed. All right, there you go. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you back soon for some more wilderness medicine goodness. Until next time, remember to keep your crampons in the ice.